This is the Cato Daily Podcast for Thursday, September 8, 2016. I'm Caleb Brown. The supply side of government power is important to study, but what about the demand side? Tom Palmer is editor of the new book, Self-Control or State Control, You Decide, available in a variety of formats for free at atlasnetwork.org. We spoke yesterday. Thinking about the question of liberty and how we maintain it, advance it, it occurred to me that we have lived in a culture in which the, let's say, broadly intellectual class has has denigrated personal responsibility for a very, very long time. This has been going on for over 100 years. No one's really responsible. There are social forces that explain everything. And one of the consequences of that is the loss of personal freedom as well, because if you're not responsible for your actions, then someone else has to pick up the mess, and that means it generates incentives for controls. And in order to address this increase in state power, the nanny state, the welfare state, the prohibitionist state, it occurred to me that we need to reinforce the relationship between personal freedom and responsibility. And that connection, I label self-control. That's the connection between being a responsible person and being a free person. So this book looks at both sides, and we're used to hearing about the supply side of state power, uh, but we're not used to hearing about the demand side. So can you break those out a little bit? Well, uh, classical liberals or libertarians or people who have been concerned about excessive state power have typically focused on the supply side. They tried to constrain it through constitutional constraints. One way to constrain the state uh, controlling speech or religion is through the First Amendment, for example, or the contracts clause in the contract to constrain the state's power to interfere in uh, uh, personal contractual relationships. That's a very important uh, activity. I support that very strongly. But it occurred to me there's also a demand side. Why is it that some people demand more state power? And of course, there's the usual explanation. Some people like to exercise power over others. But there's another element as well. That What constitutes the demand for state power is complex. And I wanted to focus on one of those important components. And that is, sometimes people screw up their lives. They do make bad decisions. And the natural consequence is people say, oh my God, we have to clean up the mess. Society has to be responsible, which means the state will now exert more control. And also, we have to stop people from making those bad decisions by all kinds of controls, prohibition of alcohol, prohibition of narcotics, and so on. And if we can address the demand side, Uh, by helping people to make better decisions to achieve more self-control over their lives, that may, I think it will, reduce the demand, that is to say, uh, move the demand curve inward for state power, and consequently, we would expect to get less of it. So this is not a substitute for other libertarian approaches to limiting power or advancing liberty, by no means, but I think it's a pretty useful complement, and it was an opportunity to delve into a wide range of very important questions and address this question of freedom and responsibility, looking at the welfare state, looking at the war on drugs, looking at the emergence of social complexity and why that demands more self-control rather than less and so on. So it was also uh, a personal voyage of of exploration. So it was also a personal voyage of exploration for me. I ended up uh, reading a lot more in psychology and drawing on psychological insights to give, a, I think, an additional foundation to libertarian values and principles. It's easy to see how... uh 
I'm trying to think of the who uh, said this line a long time ago, but it was the idea that uh, government breaks your leg, gives you a crutch, and says, look what we did for you. There is that. Uh, one of the consequences of these uh, enormous interventions into society is to disable people. And I think it's a very apt analogy. Uh, the welfare state effectively disables people. It makes it harder for them to take care of themselves. And I have great respect for people who were born into a welfare situation or through some disaster found themselves in it who are able to break out of it. It is not easy to do. And the reason is that the welfare state, for reasons we can understand, uh, puts all kinds of constraints on one's behavior. To take a simple example, if you're on food stamps and receiving rental subsidies and suddenly a windfall happens, you, you through a tragedy in the family, you inherit an automobile. You think that's a great thing. It enables you to go look for a job, to uh, uh, seek better employment, higher wages. Oh, no. No, no, no. That's a bad thing because suddenly your asset level has risen to the point that you don't qualify for all these benefits. You get bounced out of them. You end up uh, off the benefits, having to then sell the car to requalify. In effect, they're penalizing you for being a better able to take care of your life. And the whole welfare system has been structured in such a way, it's very difficult for people with the best of intentions to disentangle themselves from it. It quite deliberately disables people and makes them uh, perpetually dependent on the state. Some of the ways that uh, government breeds dependence on it are very subtle. Uh, there are numerous ways uh, that the tax code encourages people to make decisions they other otherwise wouldn't make, which sort of further binds them to whatever uh, decisions the state might make. And I'm thinking of uh, deductions for making choices that you otherwise wouldn't make uh, or subsidies that you might receive for doing something that may not be that ultimately that profitable or lead you to look more uh, carefully at uh, certain opportunities that you would make in your life. Well, the interventionist state across a whole range of activities distorts our behavior in ways that uh, uh, some policymakers or bureaucrats may have thought advantageous, but you end up with all kinds of negative consequences and unintended uh, consequences. We have the system in which if you do this, that the, they don't want you to do, you get an electric shock, you do the other thing, you get a carrot or a sugar cube, and the idea is we're going to now take responsibility for how you live. The consequence of that kind of behavior generates a whole cascade of unintended consequences, and a number of chapters in the book explore those. Uh, it's not to say that the people who did that had bad intentions. They didn't anticipate that this is going to turn out. At the Advocates of the welfare state did not intend to frontally assault urban family life and to make it expensive and difficult to maintain a married relationship and raise children. That wasn't their intention, but it surely was the consequence. So there are chapters that look at that, but also, and I think this is one of the things that, that I enjoyed about the book and editing it and putting together the essays, all of which were commissioned just for this book, is the way in which it displaces other institutions that help us to regulate our behavior. 
Uh, Steve Davies and Philip Booth from the United Kingdom uh, from Institute of Economic Affairs have a very rich chapter on the ways in which state intervention displaced regulatory mechanisms that emerged within the free society that were robustly voluntary, contractual in nature, that didn't require a, a heavy hand, but it helped people to regulate their behavior. And there's a whole range of those institutions that are displaced by the state. And when it does that, it has all kinds of negative consequences. Why is that? It's because those consequences don't feed back to, they are not imposed upon the ones who made those decisions, unlike what happens in the free society. If I make a bad decision, generally the bulk of the negative consequence falls on me. That's a strong signal to me to stop doing that. But when you involve the state, you disconnect those two. The people who make the decision and the people who bear the costs are two different classes of people. Sometimes the idea of responsibility is presented as some kind of a burden. It's a terrible thing. Uh, we hear sometimes conservatives, this is the price you pay for freedom, as though they're lecturing. And I think that's a big mistake. Responsibility is actually the reward for freedom because it means you can say, I did that. I'm responsible for that. I sorted my life out. My spouse and I, we raised these children. We're responsible for having done that. We built this business uh, as opposed to you didn't build that. Uh, mentality that we heard from President Obama. And responsibility represents, in some ways, the reward for freedom. It's not the burden or the price that we have to pay. So I think it's very important to reorient it, uh, to reorient popular understanding of this and see freedom and responsibility as an adventure, as a wonderful thing, the life of a free human being. You're not dependent on others. You do not uh, have to submit to the arbitrary will of other people. You can make your own decisions for your own life, and you bear the consequences for that. That is the life of a free person as opposed to a, a dependent or a, a subject who's subject to the power of others. So I think that it's important, especially for younger people to whom this book is partly addressed, to resurrect that notion of the adventure of living the life of a free human being. Making calculated choices about what you want your future to look like. You mentioned calculated choices, and of course we do make those uh, throughout life, but also the life of self-control is about learning to make or habitual choices, acquiring good habits. And those are things that we do over long periods of time so that being a person who is in self-control doesn't mean that you're like Mr. Spock from Star Trek or, or a calculating computer. Uh, it means that you have acquired the habits of self-control and those uh, may take a long time to acquire. I have a discussion there uh, of the literature from psychology on how to get rid of bad habits or rather, to be more precise, to replace them with better habits. And there are techniques. The book is full of uh, techniques, uh, guides from experimental psychology literature on how to improve our self-control, which means how to be able to seize our own freedom and, one hopes, to engage in the pursuit of happiness. And specifically, you point to, you have John Tierney, who's uh, written a piece in this book, and that's a lot of what he deals the with. The John Tierney chapter is fabulous. I loved his book uh, with Roy Baumeister. It's a wonderful book. And uh, I asked him, I said, please uh, write a chapter for this. And I was able to get him to do that. And of course, New York Times uh, writer, he's a fabulous writer and a very good science reporter. So that's full of, of, of tips as well as uh, very good uh, psychology and brain chemistry. 
But then there are other uh, chapters and uh, essays in it on how we can acquire greater habits of self-control. This is actually becoming easier in the modern age because now we can, um, I think, offload some of those things. I use Mint.com, for example, to control my finances. I found it immensely helpful. It tells me how much I've spent, if I've gone over a limit that I set for myself. This is wonderful. I love it. There are all these new programs you can get, even to download on your smartphone, that help you to monitor your behavior and try to fulfill your own goals so you are in charge of your own life. Something about this modern technology is, in fact, uh, remarkably liberating for the individual human person because it allows us to acquire those habits of good control that were acquired at great cost by previous generations. If I think about my father's generation, when I went through his papers, little notes he wrote to himself uh, when he was a boy and a young man to remind himself to try to be a better man. Uh, now I can put that on my uh, mobile app, and it reminds me to control my spending, to engage in a daily period of meditation. I use calm.com, for example. Uh, so the opportunities for self-control are, are greatly improved, and the book has a lot of discussion of how one can acquire these techniques to lead a better life. Tom Palmer is editor of Self-Control or State Control, You Decide, available for free at atlasnetwork.org. Subscribe to and rate this podcast at iTunes, Google Play, and with Cato's iOS app, and follow us on Twitter at Cato Podcast.